He was manipulative and manipulated. He had gumption and guile. He was a vicious infighter and a reflexive appeaser. He was imperious in manner and impervious to advice. He was paterfamilias to a political dynasty and a notorious philanderer. He was ambitious and defeatist. These are the words of David Shribman, a journalist and former reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Words from a book review written about Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., father of Jack, Bobby, and Teddy Kennedy. It's a new book by Susan Ronald titled The Ambassador. Ms. Arnold is a British-American writer born in Los Angeles, but has lived most of her adult life in Europe, first in France and then in England for over 25 years. Her book is about Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.'s time as ambassador to Great Britain, 1938 to 1940. Who was Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.? He was he was a very complex man. Um, he had a lot of attributes, um, and his flaws made his attributes look as though they were small. Um, he he was tall. He was handsome. He was intelligent. He was highly numerate, which is why he was able to make three separate fortunes um, before 1940. Um, He made his fourth in real estate. Um, But uh, he was also completely ruthless. Um, He had his own way of seeing things, which was basically family first, which is great. Um, He controlled his children through money, which a lot of people do. But At the same time, he also respected them as individuals so long as they respected him. And so you end up with a situation where he is a total control freak in in all sorts of different ways with his family. And yet he does allow them to develop as their own people. Um, And this is, of course, particularly important um, in terms of Jack and also Bobby. Um, His eldest son, Joe Jr., was really a chip off the old block. He held the same views as his dad did. When he was at Harvard, he used to preface all of his comments um, because he was studying government. Uh, Well, my father says, whereas Jack, who was very lackadaisical, uh, extremely charming, had always thought things through. And he thought things through because he was a very sickly child and read enormously um, and was always reading history books. He understood history. He understood geopolitics. He understood dictatorship. And above all, he understood democracy. And as Joe Kennedy's um, career was, was starting to unravel, it's interesting. He turned to Jack rather than Joe Jr. to try and help him communicate his frustration to the American people. So um, it's a fascinating portrait, but a very imperfect one as far as a family is concerned. Um, But he did he did have uh, he did have charm and he did have his his positive side. It's just that when it came to politics, he was not a politician, even though he wanted to be president himself.
What was the exact time that he was ambassador from the United States to Great Britain, and what was going on in the world when he was there? Oh, goodness. Uh, right. Joe was officially named ambassador in February. He was sworn in on February 18th, 1938, um, and he returned home um, on the 25th of October, 1940. Um, within a month of his arriving, there was the German invasion of Austria, known as the Anschluss. Um, he had not understood its significance at all. Um, and, and frankly, he'd only been in the job for about three weeks when, when everything was going on. But the problem was that um, Ribbentrop, who had been ambassador to Britain, was now the German foreign minister. And, and Joe actually met him the day before the Anschluss took place. Um, and told him, oh, don't worry, America won't enter into any more European wars. Well, that's not exactly something he should have said to him. And, of course, that gave that went straight back to Hitler and gave him a lot of comfort. Uh, and Joe was continually giving comfort in the first few months. So you've got the, the Austrian situation followed um, in the September afterwards by the Czech situation, where Czechoslovakia was literally uh, torn in half um, and half given to Germany with other bits and pieces to Hungary and Poland. Um, and Joe again thought that was that was just fine, even though the Czechs hadn't even been consulted on that. Um, he was He was for appeasement, which meant, you know, whatever Hitler wants, he can get. Um, that's in today's oversimplified um, explanation of it. But he actually did say that to lots and lots of people. Um, he also claimed to, Brit to the British that they can't go to war against Hitler because they, they'll cease to exist. They're, you know, it's the end of democracy. It's the end of everything. And um, by March 1939, of course, Hitler who had promised the previous September, so six months, that he was going to not invade the rest of the Czechoslovakia, invades Czechoslovakia. And Britain found itself in a position where it had to draw the line somewhere in the sand, and it decided that that was going to be if Hitler invaded Poland, which was, of course, his next target. So war is actually declared uh, literally on September 1st today, um, in uh, 1939, and it took America another 15 months to join in the action, of course, once Pearl Harbor had been bombed. So he was, he was really in Britain at an absolutely crucial time. Um, and what he said was taken as gospel to begin with. Uh, but within three weeks of arriving with what he was saying about the German invasion of Austria and everything else, he really upset the U.S. State Department, um, to the point where on March 17th, so St. Patrick's Day, um, he was going to give a speech in England, um, and he told he called um, Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, and said, how dare you try and, and make a statement about um, the Germans invading Austria when I'm going to be doing it? And Hull said, excuse me, I'm the Secretary of State. I'm the one who has to be doing it. And Kennedy said, shut up. Literally, literally said shut three up? Weeks. Within three weeks, he's got everybody in America against him. 
How well known was Joe Kennedy Sr. to Americans during the time that he was ambassador to uh, England? Um, you know, that's, uh, that's a very interesting question. I think that if you were um, from the Northeast, you certainly knew Joe Kennedy. He was frequently in the press. Um, certainly, um, New York City knew of him as a Wall Street trader. He got out before the big crash. Um, if you were a Bostonian, you knew him because he ran um, all of the local movie theaters. If you were into movies, you would have heard of him because he was a big Hollywood producer. Um, so he he was well enough known, but more as an entrepreneur, not as a politician. Um, but interestingly, he had been raising money for the Democratic Party since 1928. And when Roosevelt decided to run in 32, Joe became his, his main, um, I, I suppose, uh, you'd say his main spokesman to uh, the Catholic vote. Uh, and, and from that point of view, you're talking maybe at the time 25 million Americans who certainly knew of Joe. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You mentioned the Catholic Church. How important was that to Mr. Kennedy? And what did he think of Jews? Uh, okay. Um, the Catholic Church was extremely important to Joe Kennedy, um, though probably not as much as it was to his wife, Rose. Um, she managed to cope with his womanizing uh, by becoming a better Catholic, and she was extremely devout. Um, one of the things Joe was trying to do was to uh, create a rapprochement between the Vatican and the United States government. And um, he was behind the um, visit of Cardinal Pacelli in 1936, in the autumn of 1936, to America. Um, he had hoped that Pacelli would come out for President uh, Roosevelt on his re-election. And, of course, Pacelli didn't want to get involved in that sort of thing, and, you know, electioneering. And, and why didn't he? Because he had signed all of these agreements around Europe at the time, including with Hitler, that the Catholic Church would stay out of politics if you leave Catholics alone. And again, this is something that did not really dawn on him. Um, he was constantly, though, going to uh, the Vatican, and particularly Pacelli's um, offsider, a man called um, Galeazzi, um, Enrico Galeazzi, who was a, an ardent fascist 
and it was Galeazzi and Pacelli who would be effectively um, giving Joe a, a history 101 lesson in European politics. Pacelli was ambassador. Sorry, Pacelli being Pope Pius the Twelfth. Well, he became Pius XII in 1939, in March 1939, and Joe uh, wangled an official invitation to the coronation. Um, uh, mind you, he only had two tickets, but all the Kennedys uh, came to it, uh, as well as some nannies and other people, um, and that created its own set of problems. But he was very, very close, and actually, after he um, retired as ambassador, he became a Duke of the Catholic Church, and Rose became a Duchess. Go back to the second part of the question. What was his attitude toward Jews? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I can't remember if it was Goering or Hitler. I think it was Goering who said everybody has his favorite Jew, um, which is a way of saying, yeah, you can use a Jew, okay, but you don't have to really be friendly with them or like them. Um by the time I finished the book, I was absolutely convinced that he was anti-Semitic. None of his sons were, by the way, except for Joe Jr. Um, but the, one, the sons that we all know were not. Um, the, he uh, believed that Jews were there to be used. You can't have too many of them around because if you do, then they're going to ruin everything. There's a letter um, that I quote in the book where Joe Jr. says, well, it's the Jews' own fault. They run everything in, in Germany. They're only getting what they deserve. Now, this is from not from somebody who's stateside. He's actually in Germany when he writes this letter, and he is only echoing his father's words. Um, it, it's interesting. It was, it was quite popular in the 1930s to be anti-Semitic. Um, but, of course, since the Holocaust, um, it has quite a different uh, connotation to it. But I think that um, he did not understand that you cannot go around calling people horrible names, that you cannot say that because they are from a specific race, color, or creed, that they um, are inferior human beings. But he did. And that was wrong. And that made him a terrible person. When he was ambassador, how many of his nine children were with him? Oh, uh, all of them, <laughs> in, in various uh, various forms. Um, when he came across in '38, it was uh, Joe Jr.'s final year at Harvard. Okay, uh, he came across in March '38. By June '38, um, Joe Jr. was graduating. Jack had had his first year at Harvard then. Um, so Joe Jr. then came to stay supposedly with his father as his secretary, although the State Department and the president both said he was not fit for the post, but Joe hired him anyway on his own uh, money. Um, then it was Jack's turn the year after, and Joe Jr. made absolutely no impact whatsoever um, in terms of other um, foreign ministers or uh, other uh, ambassadors like William C. Bullitt, who was from uh, Philadelphia, who was the ambassador to Paris. Nobody really particularly liked him. He was not. Um, he, he lacked Joe's uh, confidence, but he also lacked Jack's charm and willingness to understand somebody else's point of view. So he really was basically just grooming himself to be president um, under his father's orders. Whereas Jack um, really made a hit no matter where he went. Bobby was very young. 
Um, so he was, and he was unhappy in England. Um, he didn't like the schooling. The girls basically were very readily transferable to England because they, they had their Catholic schooling in England just as they'd had in America. Um, Kick, or Kathleen Kennedy, who's the second daughter, was, um, well, she became British. She just was entirely in her element. And within the first few months of arriving here, she met um, Billy Hartington, who was the heir to the Duke of Devonshire, and they both fell madly in love with one another, but wouldn't get married, or didn't get married, rather, until 1943 because of family uh, uh, objections to it on both sides, actually. Um, but she she loved it in, in England. Um, I, I have to say also, Rosemary, who had learning difficulties, uh, she was the eldest daughter, also adored it in, in England. And I think had she been allowed to stay on, um, possibly her story would have ended uh, quite differently. Why did you decide to live in Great Britain and become a, a dual citizen? Well, um, first of all, my, gra- my paternal grandmother was British, um, so it's not as unusual as it may sound, but I fell in love with an Englishman. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so we're here. <laughs> let, let me go back to a story that you tell in Chapter 35, The Dragon Slayers. This is near the end of the book, but this particular story um, seems to me to, to um, in a nutshell, kind of explain the relationship between FDR and Joseph Kennedy, and that's the Thanksgiving weekend. Do you remember mm-hmm. this story that you told, and would you tell it? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Joe wasn't the only guest in, invited that weekend, but he was invited for the entire weekend. And um, if people don't know the layout at Hyde Park, there was the big house where uh, FDR entertained and, and where people usually stayed. And Eleanor had her own smaller house further in the grounds. And um, Joe was one of the first to arrive uh, and made a beeline for uh, Roosevelt's um, office in, in the front of the house. And um, basically, he arrived and he started berating him and screaming and yelling at him about how Roosevelt had treated him so badly and how he wasn't going to tolerate this and he was going to let the world know what a traitor he was and uh, all sorts of horrible things. And um, uh, Roosevelt, when he could finally get a word in, uh, basically said, uh, let's, let's just, just hold on a minute. And he calls Eleanor on the phone. He says, could you just go in the other room a minute? I have to speak to my wife. And basically, he, he says to her, I don't care what you do. Get up here. Take him and get him on the next train back. I don't want that SOB in my house ever again. I don't ever want to see him that's it. It's finished. And Eleanor says, but he's been invited for the weekend and the next train isn't for several hours yet. And he said, get him out of here or I'm liable to do something. I said something worse than that, I'm sure. But anyway, she comes in. Joe's not, he doesn't say goodbye to the president. He's not asked to come back in. He's whisked off in the car and she has to spend the next several hours with Joe in the car. And she recalled 20 years later that it was the longest couple of hours she'd ever spent in her life. What were the circumstances of him being there? Was he still ambassador? Well, uh, officially, uh, yes, but unofficially, no. 
um, when he came back at the end of October, um, Roosevelt had to do some uh, a really, I suppose, concerted effort to get Joe down to Washington from LaGuardia Field in New York without talking to the press. And if there's one thing Joe did uh, just as easily as, as waking up in the morning, it was talking to the press. So there, uh, basically he made sure that he was met on the plane, that he was taken to a private area, that Rose talked some sense into him with a couple of other friends, and then he was whisked off by plane to Washington, D.C., Meanwhile, um, Henry Luce and, and his wife were waiting in New York, expecting Joe to um, be talking to America on NBC radio, saying that he was going to back Wilkie for the presidency. So anyway, he gets down to Washington, <clears throat> and Roosevelt doesn't want to be alone with him. He has Senator Byrne and his wife there as well. And they're just talking and what have you. And Joe finally slams his hands down. And he says, oh, that's it. I know you don't want to be alone with me, but I'm going to tell you a thing or two. And you're going to listen to me. And I'm sick and tired of the way I've been treated. And Roosevelt listens. And they go off to a separate room. And I don't know precisely what the deal was that was done. I believe it was that Roosevelt promised to back Joe in 44 for the presidency or that he would back Joe Jr. Um, for senator uh, of Massachusetts. So um, Joe changed his tune and basically ended up backing Roosevelt. So he was he was very, very angry that he wasn't able to, you know, say everything out in the open. And that's the background to this this meeting three weeks later. What role did, you mentioned her earlier, Rose Kennedy play uh, in his life and also uh, in Great Britain? Um, Rose, Rose was his step up in the world to begin with. Um, when they got married in 1914, um, her father had been uh, against her marrying Joe for the seven years he'd been courting her, basically. And the reason was he thought he, he came from poor stock. He, he wasn't as good as the, the Fitzgeralds were. Um, you've got to remember that uh, Joe's father, Patrick Kennedy, was a saloon keeper and a Ward II boss. Um, if anyone's seen or read The Last Hurrah, that basically explains it all, um, by Edward O'Connor, I should say. A fabulous book, and certainly um, that it, it, it really helps people to understand that local politics were very dirty. I don't know that they're not still dirty, but they're not dirty in the same way. So he was looked down upon. So Rose was actually his step up. Um, once he married her and then he got the blessing of, of her parents, um, he was able to um, start making his fortune. He, his father had made him the youngest bank president in America. Never mind that it was a small bank that his father was the main shareholder, okay? So <clears throat> that's what he needed to get started in, in finance, basically. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Rose backed him up. But by 1920, <clears throat> she's pregnant with her fourth child, Kathleen, she knows that he's been playing around. Um, he's, he's an inveterate womanizer, and she's had enough. So she goes home to her father, stays there two weeks, and the father says, look, you're a good Catholic girl. You've got to go back. Your job is to your family, period. 
forget, you know, pride, forget everything else. And she goes back. And the only way that she could survive, I believe, is by being away from the family, sometimes as much as 300 days a year. And Joe ended up paying for her travels and for everything else. But she was a rock. And if she disapproved of something, Joe made sure she made sure that Joe didn't do it. <clears throat> so she was the one behind Joe saying um, behind, sorry, behind Joe not backing Wilkie because it would make him look a complete um, <clears throat> an ingrate. Rose felt that um, Joe was going to be ungrateful as the first Catholic ambassador to the court of St. James's, which was a bastion of um, Anglicanism and Protestantism going back a thousand years, sorry, not a thousand years, 500 years, um, that, uh, and if he decided to go for Wilkie, as an example, um, that their whole future of their boys would be at stake as well. And, And she talked sense into him when nobody else could. So she was, from that point of view, she was very important. But by the same token, she loved the luxury and she turned a blind eye to a lot of things that he did. We're recording this on September the 1st, and just a couple of days ago, another woman became public with a story about her affair with John F. Kennedy Jr. uh, back in the days when he was senator and president. And the reason I bring that up is because you list and talk about in the book at least three affairs that Joe Kennedy Sr. was having during his lifetime when he was married with nine children. One of them would be Marlena Dietrich. One of them was Gloria Swanson. And the other was Claire Booth Luce. Can you fill Mm -hmm. us in on why those affairs occurred? Well, Joe could never pass up uh, a woman with uh, pretty legs or um, a smiling face. Um, <clears throat> in the case of, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to have to take more water. I apologize. <clears throat> this is not clearing. Um, in the case of Marlena Dietrich, um, she was looking for excitement and she saw Joe and thought, oh, well, he's he's ambassador. He can help me if uh, Hitler goes completely gaga, as she used to say. Um, And so they became quite friendly and embarked on an affair. Um, The the best story about the affair is told from Marlena's daughter's point of view in her her biography of Marlena. And it's actually um, quite funny. She thought that all the children were just wonderful. Um, but that Joe uh, smiled a little bit too much and spent a little bit too much time with her mother in the cabana in the south of France and their, at their house. So um, he, he loved intelligent women. Uh, Rose was certainly an intelligent woman. Um, in terms of um, the, his first big affair, which was with Gloria Swanson when he was a producer out in California, um, I think that he became infatuated with uh, her on-screen image, which was quite steamy and sexy, um, not realizing, of course, that she was also very bright. But then, you know, he became her manager and and all sorts of things. 
um, and was absent from the family quite a bit during his time in Hollywood. Um, but when Marlena accused him of effectively stealing from her production company, he literally just got up, got out, walked out of the room, never spoke to her again, never contacted her again, never had anything to do with her. How much of this was so, public at the time? Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and as far as Claire Booth Lewis is concerned, well, she she did like men a great deal, and he liked women, and she was having problems with her husband almost from the, the beginning of their relationship. And Joe was an exciting opportunity. And what, what you have to remember in Claire's uh, case is she was also a staunch Republican. And to be able to turn a ardent Democrat into a backer of a, of a Republican, as in the case of Wilkie, um, became, in a way, a, a, a goal for her in the short term. And she was another advisor to Joe, as well as a, a lover. Um, so she she was incredibly bright. Um, and he did take her advice on a number of occasions. Um, and I think that uh, they were equally matched in terms of uh, their ambition and their, their rage for fame, which is, of course, the title of the first book about uh, Claire Booth Luce. So um, she, she had this, this rage in her, and so did Joe. He had a big chip on his shoulder. He wanted to make sure that the world would look up to anybody who was called Kennedy. And, and in that respect, um, he succeeded. When you look back at the election of 1940, the window Wilkie candidacy and the fact that Claire Booth Luce wanted Joe Kennedy Sr. to support Wilkie. And you and they met, you know, as you, your book explains that uh, getting Joe involved might have uh, of they needed that FDR might have needed his help and the radio address and all that kind of stuff. You look back at the results, 449 electoral votes for FDR, 82 for Wilkie, 27 million votes for FDR, 22 for Wilkie. Didn't come close. Why did they think that he had a chance of beating him? Um, it's because the 1940 election was controversial because it was the president, the first time a, a sitting president had run for a third term ever since George Washington. It was an unwritten rule. And after, of course, the FDR presidencies, it became a written rule that you could only be president for two terms. Okay, so that was that was the main thing. And there were an awful lot of people, both Democrat and Republican, who felt that it was a bridge too far being uh, running for a third term. You know, by the time he ran for the four fourth term, it was, well, let's not change horses right now because we're at war. So um, it, it was a, a fascinating time. I, you know, I, I think that also there was less ability to trust um, the polls back then. Um, not that they're entirely accurate now, but they are more accurate. You can tell when a state is going to be a close state or not. And as you know, this last election, we were all kind of hanging on, watching whatever network we were watching, trying to figure out which way different states were going to jump at the end of the day. And it was, it was a, a tight race. Um, I think that they believed it was going to be a lot tighter than it was at the, uh, in 1940. 
What was wrong with Joe Kennedy Sr. being so opposed to us getting into the World War II um, on, you know, on the Allies' side? What was wrong with that? Um, well, obviously it depends on your point of view. Um, in terms of the, the, the thing that was most wrong with it, just to try and, and, and claw back a second on your question, was that he believed democracy was finished. He believed that in America there should be a fascist government in order to control um, the way that the economy was run. Now, Joe was not a politician, as I said earlier, but he was very good on money management. And he saw everything through the spectrum of economics and not through the spectrum of politics. He knew more than anybody else um, in America, certainly, not more than any other ambassador in Europe, but he knew about the atrocities. From 1938 onwards, he knew about them firsthand. He had access to all the information about refugees in Europe firsthand. Why? Because the Intergovernmental Agency for Refugees was located in the American Embassy. And Joe was caught sneaking around in their papers many times over. He knew about the people who were killing themselves rather than being captured by the Nazis. He knew all of this information, okay? And yet he did not understand that nothing would stop Hitler other than world domination. And of course, it was going to be world domination combined with the Italians and the Japanese, but then they would end up fighting it out between themselves. So um, he didn't see the bigger picture. He didn't understand the politics. What he understood was the economics. War is bad for economics. And in fact, in 1938 and again in 1939, he becomes embroiled on, on the fringes of a Nazi ploy to um, try and get America to stay out of the war with a couple of other uh, American businessmen. Tom Watson was one. Um, uh, there were others, um, I can't remember, from uh, General Motors. I can't remember his name right now. Um, but basically, they um, were all of a mind that you know, war is bad for business. Well, war was bad for business. But both Ford and General Motors were, were manufacturing military vehicles for the Nazis from 1936 as German companies. And then they went back to the American government to, to declare a loss of earnings. So, you know, there, there, there are things that are more important than the politics or the economics, and that's called the morality. And, you know, why should you watch your neighbor's house burn down, okay, and do nothing, which is what Kennedy was saying, um, when you can do something. And as far as Roosevelt was concerned, and people will disagree with this, um, he believed that anything short of war to save the other great democracies in the world, which were Britain and France at the time, um, anything short of war was worthwhile because democracy is worth fighting for. As far as Joe was concerned, democracy was not worth worth fighting for, and that was his main flaw. You point out that he had a stroke in 1961, yep, and lived until 1969. Died at age 81. Mm-hmm. I guess a couple of questions. One: Why did his children, namely Jack Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, think so differently from him? 
And what was it like during those years uh, for him when he couldn't speak and was in a wheelchair? Yeah, um, I think it was even worse than he couldn't speak in a wheelchair. He was able to understand things. So it's almost like a locked-in syndrome in a way. Um, So he understood that Jack had been assassinated. He understood that Bobby had been assassinated. He understood that Ted had been um, uh, completely irresponsible and immoral or chappaquiddick. So all of these things came back to haunt him. He he certainly knew that um, up until then that Rosemary, who was given a lobotomy in the hope that she would be better and and less um, upset at at life in general, uh, he knew that she would never be able to walk or talk again. Um, So he would have suffered years of mental anguish in this period. Um, Some people would say just deserts. I feel I felt sorry because um, nobody deserves a, a long lingering death, particularly when you see your children being killed. Um, and so, essentially, um, it was it would have been horrible for the boys, but thank God there was enough money for them to be able to take care of him properly in his own home. Um, he was still womanizing up until. He couldn't womanize anymore uh, with Rose's secretary. That's not in the book. Um, but he uh, he had created a family fortune, um, which w- it was largely spent on making him live out his days as peacefully as possible and as comfortably as possible. But he knew that he was living out his days, if you see what I mean, and he was no longer a player. And, and that would have been painful, too. One, I think, last question is why, with all that we know now, and some people knew then, did the Catholic Church and the name of the popes and the cardinals stay so publicly supportive of the Kennedy family and the Kennedy men? Um, There was a strong bond that had been made during the uh, time that Pacelli was the senior cardinal and then later on as Pius XII. Um, the titles that I mentioned before of Duke and Duchess of the Catholic Church were passed on to the senior children. So um, Jack did not have it uh, because his father was still alive, and neither did Bobby. But um, certainly uh, Teddy would have become a, a Duke of the Catholic Church. Um, I'm not sure about Rose's titles. I imagine they went on to the eldest daughter and then so on and so forth from there. Um, But a close bond had been established. Um, Joe Kennedy had been in part responsible for the United States sending an ambassador to the Vatican. Um, And he was actually upset that he hadn't even been consulted on the choice. But then again, he would be. Um, and it was a close relationship, and in that respect, it was it was also quite political. Um, he helped the Catholic Church to better understand America and Catholics within America, and also they helped him understand, to their own thinking, what was going on in Europe. The name of the book is The Ambassador, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. at the Court of St. James's. 1938 to 1940, and the author 
is Susan Ronald, and we thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.